starting a new series today, and we're going to begin this in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. The series is called Times and Seasons. Times and Seasons. And the message is Everything Beautiful. Let's all stand together as we reference the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, and verse 11. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their hearts, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor, it is the gift of God. And may God bless the reading of his word. Today is my prayer. You may be seated. I read an advertisement this week for a lady's fingernail polish. Uh, the ad said that it was designed for today's woman. I'm sorry that I can't tell you what brand it was. I don't use the stuff, so I didn't pay any attention. Uh, but I did notice the slogan, uh, because that did get my attention. The slogan for it was, Seize the Minute. You see, it's being advertised as a fingernail polish that takes less than a minute to dry and it'll be ready to go, seize the minute. Uh, of course, that's uh, in opposition to that famous Latin phrase, seize the day, carpe diem, seize the day. But apparently, in today's world, seize the day is a rather antiquated concept. Uh, we're just out to grab a minute or two these days. Uh, that's how busy we are, how far we've moved along. Seize the minute, seize the minute. In our hurried world, then I think it's important that we notice the places where God calls time out. Uh, he is reminding us when He does this that He's in charge of time just like He's in charge of everything else in the universe. In this series then, we'll look at some of the passages where the eternal God speaks to us about time. Understanding that time means a whole lot to us. But time really doesn't matter much in eternity. You understand that? So when the eternal God talks to us about our time, He's talking to us about something that is crucial to us. And He knows it. Now the title itself, The Times and the Seasons, is derived from the first verse of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1, which very famously says, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven. And for the purposes of this study, we'll connect, see, consider the connection between the times and the seasons as being uh, that a season is a collection or combination of times. A season is a collection or combination of times. We might could consider other definitions and obviously could of a season. But in this study, a season, as it's presented to us, to everything there's a season and a time. A season is a collection of times. And it speaks to us of the way that life sometimes, not always, but sometimes, has a way of kind of clumping things together. When we go through a period of happy times, Good times, blessed times, enjoyable times. We're in then what could be called a season of blessing. A season of refreshing. 
times of obstacles and challenge that also somehow seem to clump themselves together will take you through a season, maybe, of suffering. We've noticed in our life how it seems that we lose loved ones uh, in a time together. We've experienced that as a church family, even this week, where it seems like it comes together with many. We have a season of grief. Season is a collection, then, of time. We long for the season of blessing, but we often ignore the biblical requirement of it, and it's very clearly established in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, where the apostles preaching then so long ago in ancient Jerusalem said to them, Repent therefore and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing, a season of refreshing, one translation has that a season of revival may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. And a season, a time of refreshing can come. Israel, you see, desperately needed a season of revival. So does the United States of America. The Bible is true and reliable. We all know that. And because the Bible is true and reliable, I am confident in telling you that the greatest threat to humanity at large today is not that war might break out in the Middle East. According to the Bible, the greatest, humanity of, uh, the greatest threat to humanity at large is that a peace treaty would be signed in the Middle East. Um, a lot of people don't know that. Every time war breaks out over there, somebody starts saying, is this it? Is this it? Listen, uh, the Bible tells us that the man of sin, the Antichrist, the beast, is going to come in not on a war but on a peace treaty, and he'll obtain the kingdom by flatteries with the signature of a peace treaty. That's what we're looking for. When that peaceful solution then that's provided by man it's going to last exactly three and a half years. It's going to usher in then the time the Bible calls the apocalypse. Uh, times and seasons is a reference you see that's used toward the return of Christ. I didn't make that up. Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus their last question before he ascended, which is, is this the time? Is, is, is it now? Is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom unto Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know what? The times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power. And yes, one of the messages in our series with this, uh, over the coming weeks will consider that passage and the signs that Jesus gave us so we would recognize the times and the seasons. I am very thankful that while the red flag of jihad might be flying over mosques uh, throughout the Middle East this morning, there's no red flag of jihad on top of this building. Such a thing is unknown to the Christian faith, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, what's going to come? I don't know. But I'm really glad I know the one who does. 
One of the passages that goes along with this is Daniel chapter 2 and verse 20 where Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are His. And He changes the times and the seasons. There it is again. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with Him. God changes the times. And the seasons. We'll have a lot of ground to cover. I'm not going to preach for probably six months on the times and the seasons. But I have mapped out a few messages that I think would be profitable for us and good for us to consider. Today we began with our text this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Which promises us a season of beauty. He makes all things beautiful, he says. Makes everything beautiful in its time. A season a beautiful a season of beauty. When you're considering the book of Ecclesiastes, if I was asked a question this morning, Brother Rich, what's the hardest book in the Bible to interpret? You're immediately going to think I'm going to answer by saying the book of Revelation. That is not the most difficult book in the Bible to interpret. The most difficult book in the Bible to interpret is the book of Ecclesiastes. And the reason is because it is a holy and spirit-inspired book. It is an absolutely perfect record of a person who had some very flawed thinking. The guy's name was Solomon. He was not a dummy. He was a brilliant man. His wisdom came from God. He asked for it and he got it. But the Bible also tells us that Solomon loved many strange women and they turned his heart away from God. And so we're dealing with a man whose heart has been turned away from the Lord Uh, by the many idolatrous foreign women that he had married outside of the plan and purpose of God. And he begins to look at life and living with an under-the-sun perspective. And that is he is thinking about uh, what he sees in life and what he sees in the world and all of his brilliance and all of his intelligence in is trying to wrap its, its way around how that God is working in the world. And so he sees things as they are And he tries to compare them uh, with divine revelation. And uh, sometimes when you read through this book, you'll see a lot of contradictory things. And that's hard for us who are Bible-believing Christians. That's why I'm so careful in saying that the book of Ecclesiastes is inspired. It is the perfect record of a believing man with a brilliant mind trying to understand what he sees in the world in his backslidden heart and reconcile that with what he knows to be true because he was taught from a child the Holy Scriptures. In that sense, his struggle is not unique to him. There are many people who grow up in church and grow up being taught the truth of God's Word and yet as they get their education and and their mind then grows and begins to explore all the things that are out there, they begin to struggle with what they know to be true because this is God's revelation to them and what they see to be in the world. His under the sun thinking is often contradictory as all of man's wisdom is. Is it true that the early bird gets the worm? Or is it true that all good things come to those who wait? If you don't recognize those two sayings, both of those things are statements of earthly human wisdom. Old sayings. 
old sayings. But they're not both true. Solomon begins this book, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He concludes then that first chapter, verse 14. I have seen all the works that are done unto the Son, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. The Hebrew words that he uses means, he says, everything I see is empty, and it's like grasping for wind, trying to grab the wind. You grab a handful of wind, what have you got? Is that true? That's what he said. Or are the words in our text true? That God makes all things beautiful in His time. Does that seem to be contradictory to you? It should. Yet both statements are very faithfully recorded to us by the same guy. I'm sure when he said them and wrote them down, he meant them. And he's trying then to understand because he sees so much in the world that's empty and meaningless. And he's not at all hesitant to tell us all the things he sees that are empty and meaningless. But he knows because he's been taught, just like you and I have been taught, God has a purpose. God has a plan. That God is working in the world And He is going to work things out. He'll make things beautiful in His time. Some of the contradictions He spells out for us very plainly. Verse 14 of chapter 3, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before Him. That which has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account for what is past. That which is has already been. What is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Moreover, I saw under the the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. The place of righteousness, iniquity is there. And I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Now, the first law, scientific law of thermodynamics says that matter can neither be created nor destroyed. We think we're the smart ones, but Solomon in ancient Israel had figured that out a long time ago. What God has made, God has made, and we can't destroy it. We can't undo what God has done. He was right. He looked at the place of justice, at a place that was supposed to be driven by fairness and impartiality, and yet... The very courts charged with being fair and impartial were themselves wicked. He looked in the place of righteousness where people were supposed to be right and do right and teach others to do right. But oftentimes, he said, there in the place of righteousness, there's iniquity. So let's understand that Ecclesiastes is a Holy Spirit-inspired discussion where human wisdom is struggling with divine reality. God knows what's in our hearts. The Holy Spirit knows what we struggle with. He knows what we have difficulty reconciling. And so Solomon gives us words that on one level, on his heart level perhaps, words that he knows to be true because they are words from God's revelation. But over and over again he says, I said in my heart, 
That is, what he knows is true tells him one thing, but his heart says something else. So, with that uh, rather lengthy introduction, and I apologize for that, but uh, we're trying to get this thing off the ground. Let's look at what he says and see if we can follow his logic. And he begins with the curse. That's what he's talking about. Verse 9, what profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which sons of men are to be occupied. Solomon is asking, why do we work so hard? What are we working for? What are we trying to accomplish with all of our labor and toil? We get up, we go to work, we come home, we eat, we sleep, we get up, and do it all over again. And what Solomon tells us about all that labor is that nothing ever changes. Nothing ever changes. Work and labor, he knows, came from God because the book of Genesis chapter 2 makes that very plain. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Work was not uh, part of the curse. We don't work because of the fall of humanity, okay? God established work as a part of what Adam and Eve were doing. They tended the garden. He gave them something to do. But the curse affected man's labor, and that's what uh, Solomon is looking at. He said to Adam, God, verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse 17 of the book of Genesis, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. What Solomon was contemplating. What profit does a man have in all his labor? He's contemplating the curse on our labor and on our life. When he goes on then to tell us, well, why, why are we working so hard? After all, we can't undo what God has done. What he is talking about is the curse. We can't uncurse the world. No matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much effort we put into it, the curse is still there. It is a curse on our labor. It is a curse on the world. It's a curse on life and the living of it. And part of that is that we understand that no matter how hard we work, we can't undo that. There's a lot of things that no matter how hard we try, we can't change and we can't fix curse but if he talks to us about the curse and he does he also calls us to consider the curative work of God that's verse 11 he has made everything beautiful in its time and also he's put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to the end Solomon, you see, knew about the creative power of God and how He made the heavens and the earth and He declared them all to be good. And again and again and again, God said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. But the presence of sin, it changed that. And it brought on the world the curse of God. Solomon knew that too. He knew that God had put eternity in our hearts. 
but not in our bodies. Our bodies don't last forever. And so he knew that God is changing the world. He knew that God is working in the world. He knew that though the curse is there, God is working so that everything can be made beautiful. But he also knew that we wouldn't live long enough to be able to figure it out. That though eternity is in our hearts, we can't find out everything. If you read out on in the chapter, you'll find out that part of the reason why that Solomon was struggling with this was because he was struggling to believe in the resurrection. And, and that's very plain. You can read it on, not right now. When you get home, if you want to look at it, read on through the chapter and you'll see it. He was struggling with the resurrection. And he talked about animals, you know, how the animals and men have the same breath in them. But an animal says it just goes down in the ground. And, and, and how do we know that the Spirit goes up to God? He's, he's struggling with the concept of the resurrection. It's his own fault. Job knew about the resurrection. And he had written it down. And in the 19th chapter of the book of Job, Job said this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And that was written down hundreds of years before Solomon lived. He certainly should have known about the resurrection. To know that while God has put eternity in our hearts, He's also given us the promise of eternal life to those who believe. So when Solomon is struggling then with his understanding of life after death and when he is debating in his mind and heart whether uh, the resurrection is even a reality... He looks at a world full of evil and suffering and injustice and hypocrisy, knowing that God had promised to change it all and make it all beautiful. And his conclusion was, we're just not going to live long enough to see it happen. For us, though, this morning, we can add in another passage, and that's Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 that says that we know, not that we're pretty sure about, not we think, or maybe so, or hope so, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That passage does not tell us that everything good that happens, everything that happens to us is somehow good. That's not what that says. I got pneumonia this week. That wasn't good. But what that tells us is that all things are working together, and only God can see those all things. And the end result of it is going to be good. And we have that assurance because we love God. Because we know that God loves us. And He has made us a promise in Jesus Christ. And He is going to be faithful to complete that promise. That the end result of the all things are that they are working together for good. I heard a preacher one time gave a remarkable explanation of that. I've used it several times, but if you've heard me say it before, just listen again. I don't particularly care for buttermilk. In fact, I despise buttermilk. I don't like shortening. I don't particularly care for flour. I do like butter. I can eat it by the spoonful. Hey, you can look at me and tell that. 
Though I don't like buttermilk and I don't particularly like flour or shortening, I've never tried yeast, but I'm not sure that I like it. But I know one thing. You mix all those things together and you're going to come up with some homemade biscuits and maybe some rolls, depending on what your recipe is. And I sure do like them. <laughs> it's not the isolated thing. It's how that our God, yours and mine, has a remarkable ability of mixing things together in life. It doesn't prevent us from going through some bad times or some hard times. We are going to go through some bad times and some hard times. But the end result of it all is going to be good. That is His promise to us in Jesus Christ. I don't have to live it out to see it, to know that it's going to happen. He doesn't have to explain it to me for me to know that it's going to happen because I know Jesus Christ and that's enough. And the God who could take the cross of suffering and shame and agony and disgrace and defeat of death and turn that into our ultimate victory is still in full operation. He's given us an example. It's only you see through the light of the revelation of our Redeemer that God's work becomes a matter of faith and trust so that we may not know everything God's doing, but we know Him. And that's enough. The curse... The curative work of God last. The conclusion. Verse 12, I know that there's no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It's the gift of God. Don't miss his reasoning. Why do we work so hard to make a difference when nothing ever changes? When the world is cursed and it can't be uncursed. God then, he says, is working to make everything beautiful in his time. So his conclusion is this. If I can't undo what God has done, and God is working to do it, then the best thing that I can do is to let him do it. There's a lot of truth in that for us. But there's also something to be warned about. If the only thing good about our labor and the only thing good about life is just to be happy to do good, to eat and drink and enjoy what I've made, the fruit of my labor, and I can't change anything anyway. We see in this ancient book of Under the Sun Wisdom then where multitudes today have come. The world's messed up. We can't fix it no matter how hard. So I'll just leave all that to the Lord and have a good time. Enjoy my labor. Spend my money, eat the fruits. But later on, Solomon would discuss the challenges to his own conclusion. In chapter 5 and verse 10, he tells us, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. What does he say? He said, the more money you make, the more there are to take it away. Well, that's a good message for tax season, amen? <laughs> oh, what do, you, what do you get out of it? Well, I get to see it. I, you know, I put it in my bank account, it's there, and then it's gone. That's it. I get to see it just pass away. 
kind of handle it a little bit as it goes by. So, so if the only thing good about life is just to enjoy the fruit of my labor, but then here's a challenge to his own conclusion. We don't get to enjoy the fruit of our labor. Somebody else does. That's what he says. He continues on with the challenge in verse 13. There's a sore evil which I've seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their herd, but those riches perished by evil travail, and he begatted the sun, and there's nothing in his hand as it came forth of his mother's womb. Naked shall he return to go as it came, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. He'll go on to talk about how that everything we accumulate in life we leave to somebody else, and we don't know whether they're going to be a wise man or a fool. You see, he came to the conclusion, well, I... I Here's, here's God's work and He's going to make everything beautiful in His time. I can't do anything about it, so I, what do I do? Well, I just have a good time. I enjoy the fruit of my labor. But then, lo and behold, I can't even do that. Under the sun, wisdom is no fun. I'll tell you that right now. God put this book there for a reason. He wants us to see that there's something else it is the knowledge of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, just like it was the knowledge of Job's Redeemer long ago. I know that my Redeemer lives. That makes all the difference. As a believer in Christ, then, through the knowledge of my Redeemer, He lives, I know that as long as I'm alive, there's something else at work. I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18 All things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us, unto us, the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For He, that's God, hath made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. He knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. As long as we are alive, you see, yes, God is working in the world. God is working to make everything beautiful in its time. But guess what? He let us get in on it. He didn't tell us just to sit back and enjoy the fruit of our labor. I can't change anything, can't make any difference, can't do anything about the world. God's going to do whatever He wants to do, and I just leave it all up to Him because I can't do nothing. No. As a New Testament believer in Christ, He has included us in His work. He has committed unto us the message of reconciliation. He has given us the privilege of being able to share the good news, and He tells us we are ambassadors for Christ. What is your place of, of appointment as an ambassador? It's wherever you are around people the most. Whether that's in the classroom for our students and their teachers. Or whether it's in your place of business or your place of employ. It's where you spend the bulk of your time. It's where you're at home with your children. Where you spend the bulk of your time. Wherever you are around other people, you are an ambassador for Christ. And that means that we're not just sitting back and enjoying 
the fruit of our labor, eat, drink, and be merry, and leave it all to God. No, God called us to be ambassadors for Him. What a great privilege we are. We can spend our life trying to feed the poor, but if that's all we ever do, then the poor uh, will go to hell with a full stomach. There's more to it than that. You see, the gospel makes a difference. What profit then hath a man in all the labor he takes under the sun? Well, let me answer that question for you from us in our gospel narrative perspective. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. This is a text for a famous message called How to Turn Your Work into Worship. And we turn our work into worship, first of all, by making sure that our work or our business or our job or our profession, whatever it is, is run on integrity and doing the right thing and not the wrong thing. We can't uh, cheat people, take advantage of people, be ruthless, and then be an ambassador for Christ at the same time. We submit ourselves into God and we do whatever it is that we do to the Lord and not unto men. And we determine then that we're going to do the right thing because God is going to reward us for doing the right thing, but even more, He is going to use us in as ambassadors. You work every day around lost people more than likely. You go to school every day around lost people. You interact with people who don't know God. Their numbers are growing exponentially in this country. You can't get away from them. You bump into them everywhere you go. So do I. We are ambassadors for Christ. If we lose sight of that, if we lose sight of that gospel narrative, we may very well come to the conclusion that Solomon was right. My work doesn't matter. My life doesn't matter. Nothing I do matters. I can't change anything. I can't change anybody. But let me add into that thinking this morning the fact that God is working to make all things beautiful in His time. Solomon knew it long ago and what he knew in his heart because God has revealed it to us is still true today. God is at work in this world to change the world and He's given us the incredible privilege of joining Him in that effort. As an ambassador then for Jesus Christ, you and I have that glorious privilege. But it goes goes deeper than that. It allows us to understand that my life is not without meaning. The time that I spend at work, the time that I spend in the world, it's not not making any difference. No, it's not that way. I'm an ambassador for Christ. God is changing the world. And He gives you and me those precious opportunities of joining Him in that work as we point people to Jesus Christ and His incredible love for us. I want you to know today that God loves you just like you are. You say, man, I'm a mess. Join the club. We're all our own particular version of mess and uh, always have been. God loves you just the way you are. 
But he loves you too much to leave you that way. He's working to change you, to change me. Part of what God's doing to change you may be the fact that you got a, a just an incredible desire out of nowhere to be at Faith Baptist Church today. I'm glad you're here. And I want you to hear the message of how God works to change us. You see, we were there in our sin. God saw us in our sin. But He didn't just say it and let it go. No, Jesus Christ came into this world. He died on Calvary, but He didn't die for His sins. He died for yours. And He gives out a simple message. Only trust Him. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God will change you by the power of the gospel, the resurrected Jesus Christ can be brought against your life if you'll only believe.